0: Okay, so we're uh, just to give some context. We're sitting here at the Bellagio pool, at a, uh, in a cabana. I'm sitting with uh, Jason Bomig, CEO and founder of Ironclad, one of my favorite companies in legal tech. And um, I'm not going to get too formal with this. Basically, Jason and I are just going to catch up because I love talking to Jason. Um, I have it on good word that Jason's investors are very pleased with Jason and the progress that Ironclad has made. I think he's really one of the most interesting companies in legal tech, which I'll explain a lot, I'll, but I really wanted to talk to Jason today and just catch up and, and kind of go into your backstory a little bit because the truth of it is we've never, we've kind of touched on it when we've spoken, yep. um, but I, I very often, just me personally, so I love going into backstories of companies. And The reason I like that is not just for the human element. I find that the backstory behind a company very often bleeds into the product. And I think there's a lot of instances, and I think Ironclad is actually a great example of that. Having seen the product up close, I think the story does blend in a lot. Um, but g- give us some back, just some background yeah. on you to start off with.
1: Uh, absolutely, thanks, Zach. It's really fun to be here today. Like, uh, I feel like we're missing out due to the podcast format on the scene here, uh, which is side at the Bellagio, uh, outside of the Clock Conference. So great to catch up, um, and yeah, love talking about the backstory. I think. At Ironclad, we've got a unique backstory from two perspectives, really. So we have myself, who's coming at it from the legal side. I was a practicing attorney at Fenwick and West, uh, doing startup and venture capital law, representing companies like Ironclad. And then we have my co-founder, who comes at it from the exact opposite perspective, which is a software engineer at Palantir, uh, sort of enabling humans in a different industry. How did you all meet? We actually met at Codex. Uh, So there was a Codex meeting. We had both just quit our jobs and on the same day, coincidentally. And we were... Uh, you quit
0: your job before getting any funding at all?
1: Uh, raised money like pretty shortly thereafter. Um, so, but yeah, quit the job, kind of leap of faith, bunch of student loans in the bank, and I uh, just believed in it that much.
0: Wow. Um, that's so off, by the way, I think that's how it happens a lot. Like, as much planning, I think, as we do as startup CEOs, I've, t- I've talked to a lot of people who make that leap it's done without much planning. Like the, the leap itself is kind of frightening, so just you got to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got to you got to jump off the, fr- the ship there. Um, I think there's kind of a a lot of mental thinking that goes into it before actually making the jump. But you're right; you just got to pull the trigger at some point.
0: How so? How long before you actually left Fenwick did you have the idea for Ironclad?
1: Ah, uh, so I mean. Really, I had the idea after leaving Fenwick for what Ironclad became. So there was about a six months of forming the core idea. Uh, The problem space, though, the, the boundaries of the problem that we wanted to play in, I was pretty clear on by the time I was leaving Fenwick, which is contracts are a mess. We don't have structured data around them. How can we get structured data? Because if you can get structured data, it's sort of Allows the whole legal profession to reorganize itself. You know, associates can do different work. Uh, companies can operate completely differently, and that seems like the key to unlocking a lot of the problems that, if you tackle them separately, uh, are much more difficult than if you tackle the root problem. Which did
0: you have everything. like? Did you always have an entrepreneurial bent? Did you think because? And a lot of attorneys, I think the reason we go, people go into law in the first place is nice high salary, yeah. pretty predictable, safe kind of the opposite of entrepreneurship in a way and I think it's why you get so few legal tech companies up until recently because the risk is very high you're talking about people who don't like to take or at least are at least are labeled as yeah. not having a big risk appetite um but then on the other hand like you, you did make this move so
1: did you yeah, have, did you feel I, like
0: you wanted to be an entrepreneur
1: you know I think that's Interesting about Ironclad is I don't think either Kai or I are of the category of entrepreneur that is sort of like the serial entrepreneur just loves the entrepreneurship for the sake of entrepreneurship.
0: The uh, guys who were like starting companies when they were 14. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I I didn't think I would start a company. Kai didn't think he would start a company. I think we both got so fascinated with this problem and I, I don't think either one of us will start a company again. I think this is our company. This is your on company, for like, you know, 20 years and uh you know, that's
0: it. Yeah, I, I can look back into my own past and like find things that I now can identify as entrepreneurial. So yeah, I was a stand-up comedian, which in, in a sort of way is kind of like launching a venture. It's very yeah. much full time. But I also I don't come from that. Like whenever when I talk to those people, I, I always feel like bad about myself. Yeah, these people that like oh that. when I when I was fourteen I started a service to deliver pizza into my high school and yeah. i had been you know like you know, I I sold my first business at twenty one. I then you know. Went to went back to business school. Left business school. Started my next company. I'm not yeah. one of those guys. I and mean, I, I, they said it sounds like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, well, I think the reality of it is that, I mean, starting a company is really hard. Um, yeah. So I think you have to be a little bit of a masochist to want to go through that process a number of times. Right. Um, but yeah, I,
0: I was I was talking with another very successful legal tech entrepreneur, um, also a a YC grad, who was saying everyone thinks this looks like a lot of fun. He said. It's not as much fun when you're maxed out on all your credit cards. Yeah, so, yeah. To yeah. so speak to your point about masochism. No,
1: absolutely. Uh, I think legal tech that has been a blocker is that not only are you maxed out on credit cards, but a lot of times in the states, at least, you're maxed out on student loan debt. Yeah. Um, so it makes the leap of faith scarier. I mean, I still have student loan debt, and had a lot of student loan debt when I left the law firm. So right. it's a it makes the jump that much scarier to have that weight on your back as yeah. well.
0: I want to come back to that yeah. point, but wait, hold on a second. Go, you go, go back to your story. Where, yeah. where did you recognize the problem of iron hugs? What's, what's interesting is you were at a law firm. Yeah. Now, obviously, you were working with a lot of folks and the clients, and I'm get, did you have a lot of client Facetime? when uh, you were working yeah. at Fenwick? Yeah, so I
1: did. I mean, I had an incredible experience where I, I got to work with Ted Wang, who is a, just an incredible partner at Fenwick and is now a VC over at Cowboy. Um And Ted and I actually connected when I was in law school around some of the more open source things that Ted was doing, like with the Series C documents, kind of putting those out there for the community's benefit and just letting the benefits, you know, not doing it for any monetary gain, but really kind of like pushing forward the legal community and the startup community. And I was really drawn to that. So I started kind of volunteering and helping out on some of his open source initiatives when I was in law school. We connected. I actually ended up working directly for him. so. Uh, He was very much supportive of thinking about how to deliver legal services in a new way within the context of a law firm. And I think in part, well in large part, to his mentorship and guidance, uh, I was able to to explore uh, from a different perspective what it might look like to... A lot lot
0: of people write to me about like, hey, how can I get involved in legal tech? Uh, I'm either a lawyer or a law student. And the thing I tell them always is there's plenty of opportunity out there just take initiative and start doing yeah. something and start when you're in law school. Don't, don't wait on it. Uh, so I was talking to one guy, I said, listen, go work for any discovery company while you're in law school. Yeah, a pure internship. That is a pretty solid place. There's a lot of, there's a lot of positions open and you'll start finding out like how it is that people market and sell into legal, just as a simple example. But like, again, you just took initiative when you were in law school. And I think that's also like a, like, I look back at my law firm experience and I think, how could I have done that better? I'm always looking back and sort of, you know, introspectively. And I think taking initiative was something that I I didn't understand that you could do at a law firm. I thought you sit, you wait for work, then you just get loaded with work, you're loaded for for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time, you get a a breath, and then you go back and work, 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 work. And it never even occurred to me. I know it sounds strange, and I'm I'm an entrepreneurial, like, enterprising person, but I didn't take initiative at all at my law firm. I think a lot of folks fall into that and I think you can start taking initiative like way early in the process.
1: Completely agree. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the hidden extra costs of the billable hour is that you kind of feel like anything you're not spending billing is a waste of time. But there is is some freedom to do that and I think uh, it's a great advice for people that are looking to get into legal technology to sort of take advantage of some of that freedom and some of that uh, entrepreneurial drive to start pushing initiatives forward wherever you are whether it's law school or right. a junior associate and it's not
0: like partners and uh, and senior associates are gonna get upset if you no. take initiative it's it's quite the opposite they're yeah. looking for people who are trying to take initiative like yeah. they're, they're looking to identify that and I think a lot of people are just kind of like scared to knock on the partner's office or', s- or sort of scared that they'll offend someone or rubs that's not to me I found it's usually the opposite what law firms are are looking to identify so they can eliminate are people who are just trying to weasel out of work. Yeah, people who completely
1: agree. I and, think you you have to work harder to do the uh, innovation part within the context of a law firm. Like I had this tutor that would teach me how to code on my Saturdays when I was at the law firm, and I would take that and like work on my nights to make these scripts to make my life a little bit easier. Um, but it's certainly welcomed and yeah. if you're around the right folks.
0: Did you find that like legal drafting and writing code? Was a sort of natural segue because I think there are a lot of lawyers who probably could be writing code yeah. because legal drafting is so similar to code in ways. I
1: 100% think
0: that. Uh, yeah. Writing... In fact, I, I was just talking with a, a law partner at a, an Israeli law firm who said to me, and I haven't, re- I, I said ironclad is kind of like the closest thing to this, but but not quite. He was saying legal drafting should work more like code. Yeah, and you should be able to check and run and run through the code and say in the same way you identify errors and bugs and codes or this line is off. There's a problem here. We really should think about like advanced drafting in that way as well. And I, I thought about it and I was like, hmm, I haven't really seen that, but it seems like yeah. something that again, I think for more standard documents like Ironclad does, it's probably not as necessary. But you talk about like very sophisticated credit agreements where all parts of the agreement have to be talking to one another. and You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pages. Yeah. It would be able to, you know, be great to just be able to like run a check yeah. of your code. You yeah. know, and software
1: engineers have these concepts like the concept of unit tests, just yeah. an automated test to make sure that the little things are happening correctly. Like you didn't break any definitions in this document when you updated section thirteen point five. Right. Uh, there's a lot of analogies like that.
0: So, wait, so where, where at Fenwick, did you realize the problem? Do you, can you can you like remember a single moment, or was it over time? Yeah, I think.
1: It took me a while to realize the underlying cause, which I think is lack of structured data. Um, The symptoms, though, are everywhere. So, I mean, I think I remember my first week at Fenwick, Doing a diligence exercise where we were tying together the cap table. So you sort of have to go through hundreds of records and make sure that the board consent matches the options grant, which also matches the exercise agreement. And you're just checking dates and you're checking that the figures and facts are the same across these three sets of documents hundreds of times. So uh, I don't think I realized it was a structured data problem at that point. I knew something was wrong, but uh, after kind of encountering different symptoms of that, that underlying cause I got to the structure You data
0: fe- It doesn't feel like you were an, an unhappy lawyer.
1: I wasn't. I, yeah, I actually really liked being a lawyer and I think a lot of the things I like about working in Ironclad are the things I liked about being a lawyer. Um, you know, As a lawyer and a junior associate working with tech companies in particular, you actually are a lot more knowledgeable than the, your clients, even these really smart CEOs and uh, co-founders, they don't know some of the rights in their Series A stock agreement and you can, just with 30 minutes of phone time with them, really help them understand a legal issue. And the same is true with respect to technology. You know, We work with in-house counsel, and in-house counsel are incredibly smart, um, thoughtful people, but some of them are encountering technology for the first time, yeah. and you really get to be this counselor that helps them think through how to make the right decisions.
0: Some of them are encountering contracts for the yeah, first time. exactly. I think that's like an under-highlighted point. is no, that, that like, is very true. I, I worked for two years as a transactional attorney, and if you would show me a commercial agreement or ask me to draft a you know, supply chain agreement, I would look at you sideways. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the first thing. I was actually yeah. speaking with um, Brian Bratcher, who's giving a. Um, I, I, we, we, you and I hung out with Brian last year at Clock, so okay. he's giving a, an M and A two session today. Cool. And I asked him, like, you know, what the what the presentation looked like, and what was interesting was that he said to me, "Well, the first thing I'm going to do is explain to folks in legal ops what an M and A process looks like." Yeah. And I kind of thought I was like, "Huh, if you're a." a a paralegal who got promoted to head of legal ops, which is very, you know, that, that happens quite a bit where someone who has is zero experience on the transaction side, maybe only has been working in litigations. All of a sudden, the department finds out, hey, we need someone in legal ops and they just promote you. So now you're promoted to legal ops. You're supposed to be running the entire department thinking efficiently. You may have never actually been part of a corporate transaction in your life. Yeah. And so he was starting out at that very basic point. So I think that's also sort of interesting and and when you're talking to GCs, not only may they not know about technology because it's not been part of their job until now, they may not, if they're a young GC, they may be completely new to this process.
1: Yeah, no, it's a a great point. it's been fun getting to know the general counsel persona a little bit more and that is something I really respect about the role is just how many fields they have to know about you know they might need to know a little bit about employment law a little bit about contract technology um, but don't have the time to go deep in them and I right. think they really rely on experts around them to help make those decisions and that is truly what I like about the counselor role that as a technology vendor with deep legal experience we get to play a little bit of that. Right. Uh, and that's thematically similar to the thing that I liked about practicing law.
0: Right. Um, so John and Carolyn Levy from yeah. Y Combinator are big fans of you. Love them. They, they were their, your first investors. Yep. Um, I tell people all the time the two most important people in legal technology are two of the quietest. Yeah. Um, they're not on social media. They're You would not know that they even exist. Unless you start going through Crunchbase and you look at all the legal technology yeah. companies. And like every single one of them has been funded by YC. And I've asked the partners at Y Combinator before, like, why do you guys keep funding legal tech companies? And they keep coming back to me and telling me, because John and Carolyn yeah. are on staff here. And I keep telling people, yeah, I've, like a lot of you know later growth round investors will come to me and say, hey, who's hot and legal? Yeah, And I'll point them in the right directions. But I usually say the best indicator is if John and Carolyn invested in the company, then... You should look at them very seriously. Uh, I feel like they've got the golden touch.
1: Yeah, that is true. They are really kind of the secret power behind a lot of YC uh, legal tech companies. They've, they're they very thoughtful. They're very quiet and humble um, and just nice people.
0: So, yeah, and they, and they laugh, laugh it off when I refer to them as the legal tech puppet masters. Yeah, true though. Absolutely. It's, it's 100% yeah. true. They like, they really are. Do, do you remember like your pitch at YC and like who you were in front of and how you how you communicated this? Because I I know there's some really good companies on the legal tech side that have applied at YC and and not gone. Just because you're legal tech doesn't mean you're going to get in there. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Do you remember like that pitch?
1: Yeah, um, it was funny. So we actually had a company retreat a couple weeks back and we went and tried to dig up early company history things and some of them were around the Y Combinator interview process and actually like Kai and I's first emails to each other Um, and our our pitch has actually been very similar. Uh, I think it was something like uh, structuring legal data through contract workflows was the core of our pitch at that point. Um, I remember going into a room uh, there were three people there and we gave our fifteen-minute interview. Do you remember who segment. you were in front of? I'm trying to remember now. Actually, I think it was Aaron, um, Aaron Harris. Aaron Harris. I think Kevin Hale and maybe Cat Manilak.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well. Cool.
1: Yeah. So those were our three partners once we were in YC as well. And I think they try to match you up that way, uh, which and they're all fantastic.
0: And so, do you remember? Did you come in and sort of talk about this, your story? and how you as a lawyer recognize this idea. Um, Because that's the one thing I tell anyone who goes to YC is, listen, some of the greatest companies that YC has funded came in and pitched a personal story. So if you go in, don't talk about your product. Talk about you and your story and why you're starting the company because that will sound most similar to the pitches that they remember being home runs.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think they're looking for, and they do a remarkable job of picking out good, smart, nice founders, I think. Um, so I think they're looking for some personal connection with the story, but one of the things that was surprising to me in YC and I now completely see the value of is they do a great job of teaching you how to talk about your product in really simple terms and just getting away from the hype, of um, so much of which we see in the valley. And I remember, I think at least half of our interview was, hey, walk me through what Ironclad will do you know where is the button? What happens when you click on that button? What does the screen look like at a very basic? How much did you
0: button. have at the time?
1: Um, we had some basically like mock-up prototype things. So I don't think we had any code written when we went right into the interview. We did. This by is the this end is why working product. This is why
0: see back in the day. Why today? I know they they had a yeah. company a few years ago that applied to them that already had forty million in revenue. When they apply, It's unbelievable. When I go back <laughs> I mean, to like, alumni
1: demo day, some of these companies is just.
0: Yeah, I remember looking at the one. I think it's called Boom. It's their air. It's a, yeah. this new kind supersonic of airplane, the new supersonic jet. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that yeah, some of their companies now they're coming in with like just incredible yeah. progress, but they've done such a good job. I think one of the things they've done that gets underrated is like is um, Hacker News. Yeah they've been able to use Hacker News to stay in front of their target audience on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, they want people from tar- from Hacker News to apply, and people who read Hacker News read it daily.
1: It's an incredible <laughs> funnel. Yeah, that's how I started. I was working as a bond trader in, on Wall Street, and I started reading Hacker News, and that's sort of like one of the things that got me to Silicon Valley long-term, there was someone in our batch who, from rural Pakistan, we started reading Paul Graham essays in Pakistan. And oh, Paul Graham
0: essays, I, I can guarantee you, have yeah. probably been worth many hundreds of millions of dollars to them in, in, in exits. Yeah. Because I think that Paul Graham essays, for some reason, spoke, I think it was, I think it's his style of writing, um, but really just spoke to entrepreneurs and, and hackers and They've, yeah. been, they've done a great job. So, so move it forward a little bit. You guys now have now gone through two rounds of funding, but you've also gotten to a place where theoretically you probably could have run this company without without mm-hmm. funding because the company was doing very well. Yeah. Talk about like the sales cycle since you've started until now, and how you're pitching, how you got that early traction, how you've taken it. and 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 kind of gone from there, because your your company is is doing gangbusters. I'm I'm not saying that because you're here, I would say that in in front of anyone. The company is doing gangbusters. What I love about what you guys do, and the way I explain Ironclad to people, is the documents of the future are not just going to be paper. Right. Right? And that right now, we have so many agreements that require human review, and in many ways the Kira systems of the world, and the luminances, and the heretics, all of those companies had had to create a technology that will review older agreements. Right. But if you could theoretically start fresh yeah. and just start creating agreements that don't require human review really at all, not in the same way, that's to me what, what makes Ironclad so special. I mean, you know, there's a number of document automation platforms. Document automation has been happening in terms of templates as early as LegalZoom and, and Rocket Lawyer. But you took it to a different level. Automation was like really a very simple part of it. That's not really where the value is for the the users. Explain that a little bit. Yeah,
1: part of it's this concept of programmatic contracts. So contracts have a bunch of really interesting information in them and that information needs to be acted upon later in the contract lifecycle. So maybe you need to go back to someone and renew a contract um, 60 days before it expires or maybe you need to pay one of your vendors according to these payment terms and these usage numbers. And so they're kind of these programmatic actions that should flow from the contract. There's a lot of hype around doing this on the blockchain, but uh, we actually haven't found that the blockchain really solves a real business use case. It's fine to have these centralized, and in fact our customers would prefer to have them centralized. So we're making- Makes for a hell of a headline though. Yeah, it really does. so we're making contracts that are code really. Um, they can be generated by a salesperson and ensured that a certain rule set is met. They can uh, you know, have automated accounting rules run over them after the contract is actually in place. Uh, they'll automatically get stored and surfaced in a central database. So exactly what you're talking about with just using data from contracts in new right ways.
0: and you guys end up solving it's interesting because I feel like you you aimed to solve one problem which was the structured data problem
1: yeah but in
0: some ways I feel like you solved a major problem for organizations which maybe I mean maybe you, you anticipated this but you know in organizations contracts you know I don't know if anyone realizes but contracts are not always written by the GC right in fact contracts are usually put together by a salesperson mm. um, that requires the approval of the GC. What you've done is streamline that entire process so that lawyers aren't being sales killers and salespeople aren't putting the company at risk.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that's something that's honestly been surprising at how well that's been picked up is we've had this end goal of structuring contract data because we realize all of the benefits that that accrues. But along the way, there are so many incremental benefits from just doing things like making some of the company's agreements self-service and accessible. Right, you know, at 4 a.m. in China to a salesperson that doesn't need to bother their GC anymore for a routine contract.
0: Right. So I have to pick up on that because going back to our point earlier about story bleeding into product, and part of the reason I, I tend to favor and it's not that there haven't been good companies created by non-lawyers, the reason I, I like legal tech companies created by lawyers is I think you really have to understand the mindset of an attorney who's up at 2 a.m. in the morning and needs to use your technology and your technology needs to be a lot easier than Microsoft Word. Yeah. I think that one of the things that I love about your product is, and I, this is sort of almost cliche to say about products now, but it is really simple. Yeah. Like it is, I think that you could use Ironclad with zero training and yeah. pick it up pick it up in half an hour. It's, it's really that easy. But I think that your empathy for understanding that stress of lawyers is what's made that product look as simple as it is, because you recognize that some complicated dashboard with tons of filtering and sorting options, and that, that's not what people need at 2 a.m. in the morning when yeah. they're trying to get a deal done.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree, and i got to credit my co-founder, Kai, a lot for our product design as well, so I think you, you need the knowledge from the legal perspective, but you also need the powerful technology that only these MIT, you know, Palantir... Carnegie Mellon engineers can really get under the hood and right. create a uh, simple product that's actually quite complex under the hood.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that he, he, I've, I've met him before and he's kind of like obviously talented. When you talk to him, you instantly know you're speaking to someone who's really good. Yeah. I guess what's interesting to me is that you were able to persuade him to come on this journey with you because I know that legal tech companies, one of the real challenges is recruiting the best people. Yeah. Because developers care a lot about like the lunch table yeah they like to sit down at lunch and talk to their other developers and their developer friends about where it is they work yeah they want to work at google and at facebook and at salesforce and uh cisco the, the big companies and very often legal tech is just isn't on their radar a lot of developers might not even realize that legal technology is a thing they might blockchain or fintech, there's a lot of sexier areas that they could be in, and yet you were able to get someone really talented. And actually, I can look down the line at some of the most successful, hot legal tech companies I know, whether it's Logical, Simple Legal, um, Ironclad, you go down the line and what you find is really, really talented CTOs at each, and and I sort of look at Nathan at Simple Legal as the CTO because of his technical background, you know, he's CEO, but but I mean, is that whoever's the technical lead on the team? Yeah. And ultimately, it, getting getting the best engineering talent is going to be a real differentiator.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's limited talent to go around in the valley these days, and you got to be uh, at the top of your game for recruiting.
0: How were we able to get him on and like get him excited so, about? So I it? mean,
1: the honest truth there is that Kai and I got really lucky. So we're just incredible friends and. Uh, partners. Yeah. Uh, we have like very complementary business styles and skill sets and we I think he would say the same thing we got lucky with that one. Uh, we were really interested in the same idea so the early stages were kind of easy but it's so hard to predict how well you're gonna get along with someone that you really need to have a pretty deep relationship in order to be successful um, so that Kai kind of got lucky on that front. Um, but once you have we found that once you have a core team together it does get easier because as you said these engineers want to work with other great engineers yeah. and once you have a really high bar core team together it starts creating its own momentum right um, the other thing i would add to the recruiting front is that i do think legal tech is becoming a very interesting problem in the valley i think there's some jadedness around Selling ads and working for companies that used to be hot like Facebook
0: or, yeah, or, or Google. Was...
1: And I think the new hotness is actually solving real problems. And legal tech has a lot to offer. Regu- um,
0: regulated industries, in particular.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is like contracts are really the foundations of many aspects of society. And I think if you can tap into building the next generation of contracts, that's a really important problem. Yeah. And it's the type of problem that engineers that have worked at Palantir and uh, Salesforce are actually really interested in solving. So it's not for everyone, but there is a subclass that I think this is right at the top of their list. Right. I
0: think that VCs have always been a little bit shy about legal tech because it's really hard. I think this, someone asked me the other day, they said, why does all legal technology suck? Yeah. So I said to them, well, first of all, it it, it all doesn't. And I said in the last four years, I said you could probably make that argument a little bit better four years ago. In the past four years, it's harder to make that argument. But I said if you wanted to assume that that's the case, that legal tech sucks and and ask why. The reason is, is that it's very hard to make the case to a venture capitalist that your legal tech company is going to be a rocket ship. It's it's always been hard because you're either marketing to law firms, which is a very very difficult sales cycle, or you're marketing to legal departments, who have not always been in the business of purchasing technology because already the legal department, their goal is just not lose the company more money. Yeah. So it's not necessarily spending. If you're if you're selling data or analytics tools to sales and marketing teams, they'll demo it every time. But sure. Let's let, we'll, we'll run a trial. You think it can sell us? You think it can make us more money? We'll, we'll try it out. And I think that that's always been the challenge of going into the VCs as well. So not just in terms of engineers, but the Valley in general, I think, has been a little bit skeptical about investing in legal tech. The best example is actually relativity. Mm-hmm. Andrew Saja wanted to raise money for relativity. He didn't intend specifically to bootstrap the company. He bootstrapped the company for in great part because there wasn't as much interest. So His first round of financing was $150 million. Right, it was a huge round, but it was after he had sort of proven the case. Very few people believed that this could be a unicorn, and they're probably the first legal technology unicorn, meaning company that's grown in a ten-year span to be a you know billion-dollar company. Yeah, um, and they're the first one that I know of. But I think now it seems like there's a renewed interest. Law Geeks just raised twelve million dollars. I was quite frankly surprised by the raise, um, but I spoke to their VC and what it really came down to for him was law is a regulated industry and we want to be in disrupting regulated industries. Yeah. And look, there are a lot of companies, Law Geeks wasn't the only one that they could have invested in that's disrupting a regulated industry. But I do think that now that there seems to be a a sort of interest in the Valley, I mean, Andreessen has funded Everlaw. Mm -hmm. Um, NEA just funded Logical. Bessemer has has invested in CS Disco. Um, Y'all have investments from Excel. We're not talking about, you know, we're talking about blue-chip funds here yeah. who are investing in this space, and that could really change a lot of the legal technology because you know this. You could have done this on a bootstrap budget like many legal tech companies have, yep. but certainly having capital to to improve your product is, is part of what's made it as good as it is.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really interesting time in... Legal tech right now. Uh, you can see this at Clock where last year we, I think it was less than a thousand people. Now you have over a thousand. The room in there is packed. We're yeah. out in a cabana because it's so busy in there. Um, and it, it's an interesting time. I, I'm excited that, you know, us, Simple Legal and Logical, we kind of started these companies before it was cool to do legal tech. Mm-hmm. And I think our experience was a lot of people told us to a hey, cool idea around contracts maybe you should uh, like not do it to legal departments though uh, and it's it's been rewarding to see that vision play out and more folks start to get excited about right
0: it. Well technology is also just less expensive to build these days than it once was yeah I think that's that's really critical is that you know once upon a time if you wanted something in-house you're gonna have to call up SAP Oracle or yeah. IBM to build you this highly customized solution. And you and I have joked about this, that a lot of the products, even in the legal tech market today, are not pushed to GCs, they're pushed to consulting companies yeah. that have these very, very long implementation processes that obviously are good for them because they make money on the implementation. So technology traditionally has been very expensive to build, but in an era of cloud technology, uh, in an era where, where writing code has just become a lot more efficient yeah. and there are more people that know how to do it. The whole process is is less expensive, Um, and I think that's also part of it.
1: Yeah, the economies of scale are better, too. So with respect to deploying, you don't actually, most companies, even big ones that we work with, don't require an in-house on-prem implementation. They're largely comfortable with the cloud now. You have some
0: on-prem customers? We don't. Oh. So none.
1: we stay away from that. Um, we want everyone on the same we deploy every week an update to our product. So right. uh, just that fast iteration speed and having all of our customers on the Did same. Did you ever have anyone
0: ask? Jerk. Oh yeah. And They're you still and, and you had to say it's not, not a fit.
1: Yeah, it's not really our company philosophy at this. It's point, the hardest so, thing to do, I think, yeah. as a
0: startup, but it's it's the it's the moment where I think you become legit, is where you start being courageous enough to say you're not a fit for our product. Yeah.
1: And I think people respect that. Um, yeah. We've seen people say like thank us for taking controversial views because they get a lot of just sort of pandering to whatever they want to hear. Yeah, and um, you know, some someone came up to our booth the other day, and we don't think about the concept of clause libraries with Ironclad. It's a, it's actually a really old school concept to have a clause library because it assumes a kind of very uh, like structured process way of making a contract. And what we do at ironclad is we kind of like deliver different clauses depending on where you are in the workflow and what your contract playbook is and we're like yeah that clause libraries are an old school concept we don't really think of it that way and they just thought that was so
0: refreshing this is kind of a crazy question but have you ever thought about how great the world would be if everyone was using ironclad and i know you've got competing products but yeah. if let's say everyone was on ironclad how much quicker would our economy run like it, the, the economies of scale I, I would mean, just completely amazing. change is, yeah. that, is that something you've thought about as sort of this like utopian vision of ironclad
1: yeah that's sort of like the spacex version of going to mars like that's the ironclad version right uh, the big long-term picture of how different could the world be if we could get to this state right, cause um, everyone has
0: always said that what really fixed contracts is unanimity and i say if you're waiting for Governments, whether it's state or federal, yeah. to create unanimity in contracts. Yeah. You were, you know, if you're going to be a while, grab a Snickers. Like it's, yeah. it's not going to happen. But I could see how technology platforms over time do create unanimity in contracts and get us away from this yeah. cumbersome language inside of contracts and get us to think more about contracts as business points, as data, as. Actually, Here, let's let's actually agree to something, and let's have a contract resemble more of a handshake.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, we just signed a a lease for a new office building, and uh, I think what the intermediate step to that is, is rather than global uh, acceptance of a common standard, I think you'll start to see specific industries converge around this, and there already are the beginnings of this. So, uh, when we sent the draft of the lease over to our attorney, she said, oh, I recognize this as XYZ form with, like, a couple of common edits to it. But it took her maybe four hours of reading this 75-page lease to figure out that it was on the form and what the very yeah. deviations from that form were. And no one actually wanted that. So if the other side had sent over a more structured copy of that information, that could have been communicated instantly as opposed to four hours later going through this human compiler essentially uh, right. reading it. So I think you'll start to see industries, particularly like real estate and some others move to standardized systems because it's truly to everyone's benefit.
0: Right, and the the economy we would all be making more money. Yeah, we would we would all we would all be the better if we had that. And I do think that technology and platforms like Ironclad have, have some of that promise. Yeah. Um, a lot of the companies that you've been working with because I want to go back. We we're talking about how um, this attorney at Fenwick West sort of open sourced Series C round yeah. documents. Um, I always say to lawyers today, and again, I I say this in front of you, I'll say it behind your back as well, if you're a startup attorney, whether it's at Wilson Sonsini, or Cooley, or wherever in the world you are, your Series A documents that you provide your client, they don't really care that much about, they've probably never read them, Um, they would just care about the financing, and you might care a lot about those Series A documents, but the truth is they could find them online. Yeah. They're using you because they want you to help them get to that next stage and take care of their risk. But to me what's surprising is, I would think that every single startup attorney would recommend Ironclad to their startups. And and the reason I say that is every single startup who's gone through a Cedar series A is gonna have a ton of option agreements and employment agreements and NDAs and non-competes. Even if you're not a contract heavy organization at a business level, you're gonna be a contract heavy organization at a human level right and to me not having a tool like ironclad is kicking the can down the road instead of saying let's start our our company right let's get the, let's lay the foundation for every part of our business to scale whether it's our engineered engineering team our sales and marketing team or our legal team let's set that up to scale from day 1 and one of the stories i love that you tell about ironclad is how quick your diligence was in the valley because they didn't have to do diligence; they just looked at the Ironclad dashboard. Because you guys use Ironclad, yep. and they were able to get a, an excellent snapshot of the company. And I tell this story to startups all the time, which is: if you think you're going to be going for another round of funding, don't you want your diligence to be so seamless that the VC goes, "Wow!" Yeah, right? Isn't that isn't that the first foot, you know, that, that best foot forward that you want to show? And I think that's a really, really critical point. Like as not again. The diligence is one part of that. It's sort of a symptom of the issue, but you want to create a a system that moves forward and that helps your legal department scale before you even hired a GC. Absolutely. And to me, this is this it should be, I'm not saying ironclad specifically, ironclad or a competing product. Yeah, yeah. Right? Every single startup should be advised by their attorney that you guys exist. Whether or not they decide to make the purchase. Again, I, I doubt you know Flaw Firm is going to start buying Ironclad in bulk and reselling. But it should be a recommendation. I make the recommendation. Every single startup I know that's raised Series A, have you looked at Ironclad? Yeah. Uh, and I think you you've dealt with a lot of these companies, sort of what you refer to as the companies of tomorrow. And you're seeing how those companies of tomorrow function. Yeah. Um, and it's different. It's different than what than how they've been do, how other companies operate.
1: Yeah. And that problem really never goes away. So a big buying driver for Ironclad is companies that are later stage companies that are getting ready for an IPO or getting ready for an acquisition event. So we've had a number of companies actually go through the IPO process uh, after getting Ironclad in place or go through a large, you know, even billion-dollar-plus acquisition after adopting Ironclad. And we have some case studies on these, but it's uh, been very powerful to see how the diligence process, even for these very large transactions changes when you have a structured database of all your contractual information because questions that are uh, normally very difficult to answer like show me all of your obligations in these three states that are above 25k that have an indemnification provision that result in one time sort of fire drills with outside counsel um, all of a sudden they become a three second search on ironclad and you can export the data so the the opposite side on these transactions is often wowed by what we're able to produce. Right. And I, what I
0: always tell people is because there's this, you know, question, especially around like, I think the Kira systems of the world was the, like the first kind of companies to start scaring attorneys a little bit because they were like, Oh my gosh, everything that our junior associates do can be totally automated on, on a review. Yeah. Now again, Kira is talking about reviewing old agreements. You're talking about creating agreements that don't need to be reviewed in that way at all, which is, I think a, a huge, I think it's, it's a critical point for people to understand. Yeah. But, um, what I look at with a company like Ironclad is, or I guess what I was, what I explain to people is, just because you've got a tool that eliminates what lawyers have been doing until now, doesn't mean that lawyers won't have more work. The way that lawyers work on an M and A deal is they basically go all day working on your deal, trying to uncover every potential risk, and then papering that risk to death. Yeah. They the reason they 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 stop when they do is just an issue of the clock running out and they say, okay, that's all the diligence we can do. You know everything you can, You know, now you buy the company, right? But that's not necessarily like the extent of all the work they would do if they could get that first part done of just, hey, knowing what's in the agreements, which takes them a lot of time. They would start digging deeper and asking better questions. And one of the, one of the things I think could potentially happen in sort of this ironclad utopia is M&A start working a little bit better because m and like, it's a joke. We all know m and doesn't work. We all know that every time you buy, a, a, a company buys another, the, 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 bot, the purchaser, you know, their stock price goes down. Because people, generally speaking, look at m as a process that doesn't work. I think the, some of the promise of tools like Ironclad is saying, maybe we can get better exits. And what that might create is a sort of byproduct of that. Again, this is sort of the real utopian vision is more people starting companies, because people start companies when they know that you can sell companies. That's just the way that people function. Taking a huge risk, you wanna know that there's a huge payout. Well, what if it was easier to figure out good M&A? Well, theoretically, that would cause more M&A. More M&A would cause more startups. So again, I know it's, everyone likes to say, oh, the, the l- lawyers are gonna lose their jobs and quote Richard Susskind on the, on the end of lawyers. In fact, I think it's not the case. I think that what it might lead to is just more work because more companies will want to go into corporate transactions
1: yeah i think uh in many ways what you're leading to is contracts are the grease on the wheels of the economy and if you can just make that easier to function uh everyone benefits right and specifically the way we think about it is there's two types of legal work that are bucketed in one place right now and but they really break down into operational work which is most of the diligence heavy things like checking that you know, the board consent matches the options agreement the matches the exercise. And then there's the actual legal thought, which is sort of the counseling and advice, high level strategic thinking. And we don't want the counseling and advice to go away from lawyers because lawyers are actually really good at that. And humans, in particular, are yeah. good at that, synthesizing that context into actionable advice. Um, but what really needs to go away and what's causing associates to be miserable and clients to be unhappy with their. Spend is that operational work that's being done by a very inefficient resource. Yeah. So computers are great at routine tasks and uh, you know surfacing information around structured search and making calculations and associates are a very inefficient way to do that. So I, I really said, want to replace that. I said
0: to my corporate lawyer once uh, I said do you, do you know why I hired you? And he's a friend of mine and he said. Uh, No, I hadn't really ever thought about it. You hired me as you have a company, you need a lawyer. He said, the reason I hired you is because I am not a very good judge of risk. I was an attorney, but I have a sort of distorted version, distorted reality when it comes to risk. I don't appreciate risk very well. That's why I do things like just decide one day to leave my job and start a company. Right? So I said, you, you have a really good understanding of risk, but it's not like a crippling one. I, I can understand that you get business as well. But you have a better understanding of risk than I do as a person. So I want to give you my risk and let you hold on to it. Because if I hold on to it, there's going to be chaos. And I think that when we get lawyers back to that, and we start getting back to what lawyers as humans might actually be better than. Because you want secondary protocols. Yeah, you want to know what your data is. But you also want that that person with that hunch. Yeah. Like I use the example of baseball. Baseball went yep. to like, you know, Billy Bean and Moneyball and, and data. But what's coming back now is managers who can look at a player and just say, I know that guy is good. I can see it with my eyes. I've seen hundreds of baseball players in my years, and no amount of data or statistics is going to tell me that that guy cannot come up bottom of the ninth and come up with that big hit. And I think that those instincts and hunches are so powerful, yeah. When you and when you pair them with really good data, that's when you get something phenomenal.
1: Exactly, I think that combination of human intuition and synthesis and computational calculations and routine tasks is really the where the future is headed.
0: Cool. So before you go, and I listen, you've been, I, I appreciate you coming out here and hanging out with me. It's great. Um, but I want to ask, you have, maybe you're hiding it, but I feel like you are just very mellow. And you always come across as very mellow. And yet running a startup is super, is super... Stressful, and I think anyone who's seen Silicon Valley HBO, one thing I love about that show is that if something's going well for the team, you almost know that something bad is coming. And if the episode starts off and they're they're in just mired and in, and in, in bottlenecks and problems, you know that something good is happening. Right. And, and I find that's a very true feature of startups. Like if I have a good week, a really good week, I know the next week is going to be rough because it just that's the way it works. Very roller coaster. How do you stay so mellow? Are you this mellow for real?
1: Uh, well, so I was talking to Chris Chin from Google's legal ops department the other day, and he was saying that the early Google culture had this quality of laid back intensity. And I think that's a very ironclad and myself personally attribute as well. I might appear laid back, but I'm also pretty intense. So um, maybe that's the. Do you have any? Do you have any good
0: methods for maintaining like work-life balance? Someone just recently told me turn off the notifications on your email on your phone, and I was like, game changer. And it's total. It's it's been my my blood pressure has for sure gone down.
1: I don't know. I think I've just embraced um, this being an all-encompassing thing. So I'm sort of I'll meditate, um, try to find some mindfulness. Uh, try to work out on a regular
0: basis. Yeah, that's a huge yeah. one. That's a huge one. That the, the game-changing moment for me was when I realized that workout was not something that I did in addition to my job; it yeah, was actually part to. of my job.
1: You have to do it, and I do it during work
0: hours because yeah. I know how important it is. I think when you treat it with that importance, you get really the, the reward from it. Yeah, Are, you've worked how many weekends of of the last four years? Is there? Uh, can, can you remember one that you didn't?
1: I, I don't know. It's kind of like constant.
0: Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, by the way, this is an interesting feature, and on this whole will wrap. An interesting feature of legal tech entrepreneurs is, number one, incredible work ethic, because I think they've all been trained by <laughs> law firms. I know. And as much work as I, I've, I've been busy in, in startups, but, man, when you're, when, you're in a, when you're in a big law firm on a big deal, that's, that, that's a different kind of work ethic. And the other thing I think is, is the most interesting is fiduciary duty. This is, to me, what separates legal tech entrepreneurs yeah. and what I think is an underrated quality as an investment, as a, as a sort of a portfolio, as an asset class. Agreed. Right? A lawyer feels fiduciary duty in a way that a, a, you're your run-of-the-mill entrepreneur who starts a company, raises money, then 18 months later, they're out of money, and they're ready to move on to their next yeah. thing. I don't see that happening with legal technology. I'm about to interview Alma say, Alma grinded. For years, for years, and, and, and lived in, 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 you know, not discomfort, but in stress. And where others would have given up earlier, she stuck it out. And that's just one example. There are many attorneys who've started companies yeah. who, who refuse to give up because I think they have this sense of, no, I, told, I raised money for my investors, and I told them I was going to give them a return, so I'm going to do everything I possibly can until I've yeah. done that.
1: I think that extends to customers as well. There's this less of an attitude in legal tech generally, I think, of uh, taking advantage of customers and it's really, we do look out for and have a sense of responsibility that I don't necessarily see outside of the legal tech space.
0: Interesting. Um, this has been amazing catching up. Yeah. This, this has great. been like so much fun. and. us uh, do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm I'm loving this command. I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna set a trend here in clock next year. Next year we're gonna have yeah. all, all, all the booths be at uh out I'm of the into pool. it. All right, man. Listen, amazing hanging out and um, Thanks for having me. Yeah.